Welcome to the PokePress Digest Podcast, a Pokemon news magazine show. Here you'll find some of the best content offered by our site. For more, visit us at pokepress.blogspot.com. For this episode, we have two segments. The first is a discussion with Anne of PKP Podcast comparing the English and Japanese ending themes of the third Pokemon movie. As usual, we go over the production details, then evaluate the songs and decide which one comes out on top. Our second segment is an archival interview with Helen McCarthy, author of the Anime Encyclopedia. This was recorded at a press session at Anime Central 2014, so the audio quality isn't perfect, but it should still be a good listen. Thanks. Hi, I'm Stephen Reich here at the PokePress Studios in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm on the phone with Anne from PKP Podcast. And it's time for episode three of our discussion of the Japanese and English ending themes of the Pokemon movies. So since this is episode three, of course, we'll be talking about Pokemon 3, the movie. And on the Japanese side, we have The Day a Rainbow Was Born. And on the English side, we have To Know the Unknown. So, Anne, uh, why don't you start giving us some of the production details of The Day a Rainbow Was Born? Okay, so um, The Day a Rainbow Was Born, Nijiga Umaretahi. Um, it was written by Akihito Toda and then composed by Hirokazu Tanaka. Um, and this is the same team that brought us uh, together with the wind and a lot of uh, the songs that we love in Pokemon, Mizase, Pokemon Master, etc. Um, so they're kind of at this point the go-to for when they need songs for the Pokemon anime. Um, the recording artist, the singer, is Kumiko Mori, and she's really interesting because she's She's kind of an opera singer, like Western style opera, which is kind of makes her different from, you know, the other opera singer we've had on, on Together with the Wind, um, Kobayashi Sachiko, you know, who's more traditional Japanese enka operatic style. So I kind of find that different and interesting, her placement of vowels and her vibration. Like she's just a very accomplished singer um and she also does a lot of work for like uh disney channel japan and stuff so if you're into a lot of kids programming you've probably seen her around and i've not been able to find it where this is but she is credited for being the original voice of pikachu even though i believe ikue otani is credited for the first episode so where she does pikachu's voice is a mystery to me but that's a mystery somebody can track down on their spare time. It is interesting to sort of have those two different styles that are kind of in the same vein, but also significantly different. Any idea? I guess we can assume that this song was written for this movie, unlike uh, what we believe for the second movie, Twa and Ma, we were pretty sure was not written for this movie. Does that seem like this time they did write it for the movie? I would think so. I it, it fits very well lyrically with the movie. And then again, also just being that the two of them, a lot of their breadth of work is teaming up together to write Pokemon songs and movie ending themes. So I would imagine that if it wasn't written specifically for the movie, that they were pretty much in that vein when conceiving the song. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. Well, if we go to the other side, to uh, English, of course, we have To Know the Unknown which was written by John Siegler and John Leffler, who, of course, wrote the original English Pokemon uh, anime theme, as well as a number of the seasons uh, after the first one. 
Lyrics, though, are actually by Norman Grossfeld, who you may remember as sort of being in charge of the dub and a lot of the translation aspects of it during the Four Kids era. So, very obviously, this was written for the movie. Uh, Unlike the other two movies, uh, the soundtrack for this one, this is pretty much sort of the only sort of uh, major-ish artist, uh, in a sense, in case you're wondering was an offshoot, kind of loosely, of the late 80s, early 90s Mickey Mouse Club. Uh, Some of the members had been from there. And in fact, one of the early members uh, was Britney Spears, uh, before she went off and did a solo career. The group was co-managed by Lou Pearlman, who actually has connections to quite a number of folks in the first couple Pokemon movies. Uh, He helped form the Backstreet Boys, NSYNC, O-Town, Aaron Carter, and a number of others, and uh, later ended up getting sued by most, if not all of them. He's responsible in many ways for sort of the pop sound of the late 90s and early 2000s, Um, but sort of after that time, he sort of uh, faded away and eventually got arrested in relationship to a Ponzi scheme and actually died in prison. (laughs) Obviously not a happy story, but given his involvement with so many of these groups, we kind of had to mention it at some point. But as for Innocence themselves, they did have an album. It never really got that much traction. Um, neither did any of their singles, so I'm guessing that actually a lot of folks, this is the only Innocence song they might actually know. Yeah, definitely for me, if it weren't for this song, they never would have hit my radar. All right, well, going back to the Japanese side, uh, what are you sure your thoughts about, you said it's operatic, but in a different way than uh, Together with the Wind from the first Japanese movie. Uh, how would you describe some of the differences? Um, well, again, it's, it's Western style opera. So it's kind of got that very sustained vibrato, um, very rounded vowels that if you speak Japanese, there's a fluently, there's a placement that's almost a little bit nasally. That's very common. Um, especially in female singers, it translates over and you can hear that really hard in a lot of Enka. Um, singers. And for that reason, a lot of Westerners often don't get on board with Enka because they hear that really nasally type of, you know, vibrato that almost seems to be switching notes and singing off key. And, you know, it's so different from our Western tastes that some people just can't, you know, get, get with it. But because Kumiko Mori, like, trained in Western style opera, she has very much, um, a kind of style that we would, kind of gravitate to over here, the Josh Groban, you know, blah, sort of sound. Um, so even though she's singing Japanese, there is kind of a Western sensibility to it that's kind of got, gives you a nice sort of soft ballad feel. And it's just an interesting combination of vocal sounds, I think. It definitely gives off a different presence than uh, what we saw in the uh, together with the wind, it's yeah. it's probably a little more intimate and and uh, secluded. It's obviously not as as bombastic as that song uh, from the first movie gets towards uh, the end, which maybe is better tied into sort of the the relationship mechanic both between Ash and his mom and Molly and her parents. Um, so maybe that was what they were going for there, because this is definitely a, a scope-wise kind of a smaller movie in many ways. It doesn't involve 
sort of this this huge group of of Pokemon assembling like we see in the second movie. Does that sound like a, a good characterization to you? Absolutely. It's a it's a small personal movie about like a little girl's trauma. And the song is, you know, again, a small person deciding that through whatever traumatic thing life throws at them, they're going to find a way to smile. So I, I think, yeah, that fits very well, that it's more intimate, it's more softer and personal. And, you know, we don't have the choir of children in the background, that kind of thing. So overall, definitely a different take there. Yeah, we're, they're don't going for a different feel. And then coming back to the English side, we have To Know the Unknown. You know, at first at least, and I'm not going to say the song is super deep or anything like that, but it definitely listening to it seems sort of like a fairly straightforward pop uh, song. And it sort of talks about, you know, various things and sort of debates about how important is it to sort of understand everything versus sometimes you have to sort of move past things. Uh, do you feel, and like that really ties into the movie? If so, how? It does and it doesn't for me, because on the one hand, you know, you could almost make a case that this doesn't fit the movie or the series at all, because so much of the series is like, we want to explore the unknown, we want to know the unknown, we want to find out the mysteries of the Pokemon world. That's what the narrator says every episode. Um, but in this specific movie, you know, we've got a, a little girl worried about her future and, you know... We've got people bogged down by the tragedies in their life and unable to focus on the beauty that is around them and, and unable to reach out to the world because of fear. So if you look at it almost from Ash's perspective of like, you know, I don't need to know, you know, what the future holds. I don't need to worry too much about these things I don't understand as long as I have the friends and family who support me that I do understand – I'm okay. So it, it it does and it doesn't. You almost have to do some acrobatics and thinking for a song that's not, you know, especially poetic and deep. <laughs> yeah, I'd say the probably the, the deepest lyrical part is where it sort of uh, compares uh, revelations to castles in the sand, which I guess is just kind of funny now because, of course, uh, we're recording this around the time when Sun and Moon comes out, and of course there is a sandcastle Pokemon in that, so maybe that's just why that sticks out a little bit more. <laughs> but, um, yeah, maybe it sort of does reflect Ash a little bit better. Do you think the Japanese one maybe reflects uh, some of the other characters a little bit more? I do. Um, the Day Rainbow Was Born seems very specific to the main theme of this movie, which is Molly's journey and, you know, her being able to open up despite the tragedy that has happened in her life and move away from her isolation. It talks about, like, the rain will end soon. Like, you know, this, this horrible time is going to be over and you're going to be able to find a way to smile and, and reach out to people. I mean, it talks about like, you know, true isolation, trying to get away from it all and be really alone and block the world out. It doesn't actually exist. And in time, you'll realize that. So it kind of feels almost like a song from Delia to Molly, or the world at large to Molly, maybe, kind of encouraging her to open her heart and, and, you know, being able to, like, it talks about give your sadness wings um, and, you know, meeting other people's tears and sharing that grief and 
from there, a rainbow will be born. And so, yeah, I think that one definitely fits the characters a bit more, a bit more explicitly, at least. What about the uh, the musical styles uh, of To Know the Unknown? There's a lot of acoustic guitar, and then there's some, some synth in there. Very much, I would say, a late 90s, early 2000s uh, pop instrumentation, uh, you know, a, a typical pop instrumentation from that era. Oh, yeah. It, it definitely my style of listening. <laughs> I, I love the sound of To Know the Unknown. It's a beautiful song, right with my tastes. And uh, although I have to say, you know, in 2001 when this came out, I do think that even prior to, say, 9-11, which was later that year, that this type of music was kind of showing its age. Do you feel that that was the case back then? Um, I wouldn't have noticed because, like I said, this was my jam. <laughs> so I my musical tastes kind of hit the 90s era and never really left. So... I don't think I would have noticed at the time if it was. When I think about it, what you're saying, I think I agree. When I think of what was popular that year, yeah, probably it was. Yeah, I mean, that era of music was definitely targeted at a very specific audience, and much (laughs) like the Pokemon audience, that did kind of grow up. Although, like I said, I don't think that either of these are a bad song. I don't think that um, To Know the Unknown is, is especially dated, but maybe at the time it didn't, um, or in, shortly thereafter, it didn't seem quite in place with how folks maybe wanted to perceive music then. But that was kind of just a sort of a discussion point. Yeah. Now, one thing we should definitely mention is that there is, on um, of uh, The Day a Rainbow Was Born, there is an English version of that performed by the, the same person. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? It's very interesting. And like I said, with her having so much Western opera training and you being able to speak English and the like, I mean, I guess it was a good enough choice to have her do both versions for the single rather than bring in another artist. But the lyrics don't have the same rhyming sensibility that we would have in the West. And then she does have a bit of an accent on top of that. It, I have trouble getting on board with it. So it's interesting to me. And I appreciate it on the single, but it's not, you know, one that I listen to because I want to feel good and, like, connect to the movie. How do, do you know feel? if uh, Kumiko has any, like, English background, or was she just trying to, to do the best she could? Or, or um, She has any, some. I- she lived in the United States and then also Italy. And, again, that's kind of where she, again, when she studied, like, opera and stuff, she had a lot of English and Western language training. Um, and she's done a little bit of work in English countries as an actor as well. So it's, I, again, sometimes your accent just never leaves you, but it's not like she's completely unfamiliar with it. So like, again, some of her pronunciations are quite good. Some of them are not as great. It's just, it's just a mixed bag, I think. Yeah, it, it, it sort of serves as a comparison, going back to the second movie dub soundtrack to The Extra Mile, which was performed by Laura Pausini, who is, uh, I don't know, if she's from Europe, as she does stuff, I believe, in Spanish and Italian, and she worked... Extraordinarily hard, but I will say that the Kumiko's English work is certainly much better than my Japanese. So <laughs> yeah. I will always give give folks credit for that. Yeah, so sometimes it's hard to get pronunciations. I think she does a pretty decent job, but again, it's just the rhyme scheme works against her. Um, we don't. I don't have a credit for who did the translation. If it was like you know Akikotoda or Hip Tanaka, or if they hired somebody else to do it. 
Like, it makes grammatical sense, but melodically, like, sometimes the emphasis of where we would put on a word is a little, little odd. Like, you know, a native English speaker might make a different choice. So I think it's just a lot of things were working against her in this song to make it appeal to Westerners. But I think to a Japanese speaking audience, it actually probably was really quite enjoyable. So you, I'm guessing from your response there that you don't think it would have been a good idea to either use the English version in the in the dub credits or to get another person perhaps to try and re-sing those lyrics, a native English speaker, to, to do the same. I don't think it would have been a good idea. I mean, even if you got a native English speaker to sing these lyrics, it would have been a, an uphill battle still because, again, it just it just doesn't rhyme the way we think it should rhyme. <laughs> It is difficult, and I'm, I'm sure some folks out there would have been completely fine with that, but, you know, yeah. I, I don't mind the replacement of uh, To Know the Unknown. I still think it's a good song. It's maybe not as impressive as what was done there, but as far as starting from a clean slate, I think that To Know the Unknown does a, a reasonably good job there. Yeah, I think To Know the Unknown does exactly what they meant it to. It's a It's a fun, beautiful song that kind of gives you kind of a warm, glowy feeling after the movie. And and again, it's something that's very appealing to the audience listening to it. So Yeah, it definitely, I think, informs a lot of dub endings to come, which, which for the most part are going to be written by the usual Pokemon writing team going forward. Mm. All right, well, this is sort of coming to the, the third part where we kind of decide which one we like more. This one is kind of... I wouldn't say equal, but it's kind of a split decision. I would probably give The Day Rainbow Was Born more points for ambition and effort. Um, to Know the Unknown is much more of a fun song to me, and of course being in English, not counting the English version of the Japanese ending, is, is still a bit more resonant. Um, I don't hate either song. I'm not sure I like the, either of them as much as some of the stuff that was done on other movies. Is that about where you fall? Um, I'm split, but for different reasons. Like, To Know the Unknown is a song that I still listen to, like, it's still on my playlist, and I happily listen to it whenever it comes up. So, it gets points on that side, but I do think The Day a Rainbow Was Born, it fits the movie, it fits the mood, it fits the themes... So I am, if I have to say which one was better, like, the, to me, The Day a Rainbow Was Born does a better job of a movie ending theme, um, whereas To Know the Unknown is an uh, awesome Pokemon song, but it, it falls a little bit short in the matching sense. Yeah, but I'm, it's I'm not tough. sure. They're close. They're close. They're close, but they're, they're definitely different yeah. in terms of their structure, in terms of their purpose, more so than, say, the first movie ending themes were. And like I said, if I had to put one above the other, I'd probably pick The Day a Rainbow Was Born on Technique. But neither of these is terrible. Neither of these is my favorite Pokemon song ever, though. Um, I like them. I don't know that I particularly love either one, I think is what I would say. Yeah, I think that's... That's fair. Particularly, you know, obviously on both sides, we've had a ton more ending things come out after that, and that's maybe helped put these into a little more perspective. It's true. If you have the breadth of Pokemon music, they sometimes, th there are going to be a few that just don't quite stack up to their friends, and that's okay. 
All right. Well, I think that's going to do it for sort of the main part where we talk about the ending themes. Not as much to talk about, I think, with these two ending themes. I think other movies will probably have more to talk about with some of the later movies. Uh, Certainly the fourth movie coming up is uh, very much a dichotomy between the English and the Japanese. It sure is. (laughs) But for the time now, so this was kind of an odd release because the first two movies had these pop soundtracks that were produced by Atlantic Records. And then this third one, they switched things up. Um, so there are sort of two albums that have a lot of overlap on the dub side. And there's Totally Pokemon, which came out early in 2001, around the time season three, I think. Well, it was a little few months in, but it came out early in, in that year. And then there's Pokemon 3, the ultimate soundtrack. And the tracks between the two are very, very similar. Um, They have almost all the same tracks, with the exception, of course, being on the movie soundtrack. There is the movie remix version of Pokemon Johto, which is same vocals, but very different instrumentation, kind of like what was done for High Touch for the Arceus movie in Japan, where they took the original vocals and drastically changed the underlying instruments. (laughs) And then, of course, we have to know the unknown, and we also have um, some stuff from the score of the third movie. It's never been released in its entirety, but they do have some passages from it on this CD. So let's start sort of talk about this. There was this group called Jodo, which was this three men, three women group. It was basically created to create most of these these songs here. A lot of them were featured in the ending of episodes. Uh, you know, uh, what are your overall thoughts about uh, this sort of uh, compilation? Well, it was definitely an interesting time in Pokemon music. I think, like, I was starting to get a little too old to really enjoy, like, the Poke rap um, and some of those things. So I didn't appreciate it at the time as much as I do now. But I, they wrote a lot of just really interesting, fun songs. But I was always really confused about the split between that and Totally Pokemon as well. Because, again, some of them just don't seem to fit the movie on Pokemon 3, the soundtrack. Yeah, definitely. The repurposing definitely didn't produce as um, as integrated, even as maybe even the first movie where most of the songs were curated versus the second, where most of them were written or tweaked or, or whatever for that soundtrack. I, I do kind of have to agree that this is sort of a... Way to sort of, I guess, try and feed things back into the series, maybe? Maybe. Like, now that I look back on it, I appreciate the songs as songs a lot more, but I remember at the time being a little disappointed just because that wasn't what I wanted out of a movie soundtrack. But that's no criticism of Johto and the work they did in, again, making a lot of really fun Pokemon songs. Yeah, I mean, it. it there are some... Some new things, like Song of Jigglypuff, really like that. Two Perfect Girls is also a that great one. Yeah. <laughs> and then you have sort of He Drives Me Crazy, which is sort of the inverse of Misty's song from the To Be a Master album. Not that it's ass singing, but that it's Misty sort of doing the, the other side of the reasons she kind of finds ass very frustrating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sort of the, the hate side of the love-hate relationship, I guess you could say. Right. <laughs> And, uh, you know, a couple of the songs on there, Pikachu, You and Me and Pokemon, were originally developed for Pokemon Live and sort of adapted here. Mm-hmm. And we have the, the GS Pokerap, Pokerap GS, of course, which maybe not as, certainly not as iconic as the first Pokerap, but I, I still say it's better than Hoenn Pokerap, which <laughs> I, 
which I, I, I swear is one of the worst, probably the worst vocal English Pokemon song ever. So say what you will about PokeRap GS, um, it's, it's certainly not the bottom of the barrel. So of the songs that are on the Pokemon 3 album that are recycled from Totally Pokemon, which ones do you think, are there any you think do work for the movie? For the movie specifically? <laughs> um, not really. I think you could make a case for biggest part of my life. But again, that's less the movie and more the series as a whole. <sighs> yeah, I guess it was kind of a disappointment to sort of pick this up and just, it, it's sort of that, that syndrome of the late CD era where you'd get a, another album that had just a few things, but you still had to pay full price for it, which. Yeah, no, I would almost say totally Pokemon has a song on there that I would say might have fit the series. The soundtrack CD more, never too far from home. Oh yeah, yeah, that would have been. It is kind of surprising. If Let me they just double switched check. one of those tracks around, I think they might have had something there. But that is really surprising. That yeah, never too far from home. I mean, you can kind of put that in maybe any Pokemon movie, especially like after the first generation or whatever. But it's uh, true. But at least it ties back to Ash's mom. And and to a lesser extent, I suppose, uh, Molly's parents, who are kind of trapped rather, in a way, very far from home, but uh, sort of... Right, it- but that sense of family is not necessarily a place, but what's in your heart. Yeah, you could you could make a case for that, I think. But yeah, so I, I know a lot of folks do feel like Pokemon 3 is a redundant soundtrack, especially in the U.S., where both... Totally Pokemon and Pokemon 3 were released very close together. I think in some markets, Pokemon 3 was released, but there wasn't, it wasn't Totally Pokemon or a localized version of it in that region or vice versa. And I like, I know that in, I think in Australia, they actually packaged the score to the second Pokemon movie with Pokemon 3. So you got a little more value there. It is kind of a, a weird duality where there's a couple tracks in one, a couple tracks that are only on the other, and the value is kind of debatable. At least in this day and age, you can buy things by the track, and that's not so much of an issue. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that about covers what we can get from here. Uh, in our next episode, of course, we'll be covering Pokemon Forever and uh, the very, very different songs there, both of which I like, but for fairly different reasons. All right, well, thank you very much, Anne. It's been great having you on for another one of these. Oh, thank you. This has been Stephen Reich from the PokePress Studios in Madison, Wisconsin, on the phone with Anne from PeakBee Podcast. My name is Stephen. I'm from an organization called Pokey Press. Uh, what prompted you to basically write a, uh, an encyclopedia of anime? Is there a particular point where you said this needs to be documented somehow? Were you getting a lot of questions from people? How did that come about? It came, came about in the very, very early days of my fandom in 1981. Um, I started studying anime in 1981. And I'm a public library kid. I was, I was brought up by parents who every time I had a question said, get a book. You know, go look it up. Don't just ask somebody for their opinion. Go look it up and, and get a real authority. So I went to the library, and there were no books on anime at all. Not, not one. Over two years of research through a huge number of libraries, some very respectable academic libraries like the British Film Institute Library and the British Library, I managed to amass 800 words about anime. 
I thought, this isn't going to teach me very much. And it's, it's, it's really obvious that nobody is interested in exploring this thing, so I'd better write a book about it. And in fact, I've just done a whole panel on that um, this morning. I set out to try and persuade publishers to accept the anime encyclopedia because it was the book that I wanted to read. Therefore, I'd have to write it. And it took me, oh, well, it's, it's 33 years this year since I started pitching the book. Um, it actually, the first edition came out in 2001. So if we knock that out, it took me 20 years to get the first edition accepted. But finally, I mean, this third edition is really doing most of the jobs that I wanted the book on anime I needed to be able to do. So I think, you know, it's, it's finally got there. It's only taken me 33 years to find the book I wanted on anime. And I had to write it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, I figured we could go maybe a step farther back. And uh, how did you first catch the bug? Oh, well, that, that, that's, that's a very, very familiar story, met a guy. You know, when, when you meet a guy, um, or you meet, you know, your, your partner of whatever gender you choose, there's, there's always a period where you, you're finding out what each other likes, and, you know, you're exploring each other's interests, and you're learning new things, and, and when I met Steve, he'd just got back from a post-graduation trip to Europe, and he'd been to the Spanish island of Mallorca, and he'd encountered anime in Spanish. And right away, because he, he's an illustrator and his whole group were fine artists, they knew that the cartoons they were seeing, even though they were in Spanish on the hotel TV, were not the same as the cartoons that they were seeing that had been made in Spain. They could see there was a visual difference. So they came back, having scoured the town for everything they could find, knowing that these were robot cartoons made in Japan. And when he showed them to me, I was astounded, because at that point I read no Japanese, and I also read no Spanish. But I could follow the videos, I could follow the comics, purely from the strength of the narrative imagery. And as, as a storyteller myself, that absolutely fascinated me, and I thought, we have to find out more. And then we run into this black brick wall that nobody knew anymore. And when somebody says to me, um, it's better if you don't go there because nobody's really interested, I kind of get a says who reaction and, and start digging. So that was really where it all began. Um, was there any particular show that caught your eye back then? Or? Well, obviously Mazinger Z, because that was the first one. But when we started, um, we had a lot of friends in Star Trek fandom. And through them, I was already trading videotapes, so I managed to amass quite a bit of video. And the first show that really got me was Zeta Gundam. Um, Steve loved it because it had great, big, zonking, heavy robots. I loved it because it starred an Aryan blonde in shades. There was an annoying kid, but there's always an annoying kid. You know, <laughs> try and get over that. Um, and I, the thing that I loved most about Gundam was the idea that all of man's ills and sorrows and dangers are man's own fault. And I loved that, that nugget of realism and truth in, in this whole fantastic universe. It was just great. Uh, well, taking that to uh, a more realistic level, um, how you, you've been watching fandom for such a long time. How has fandom changed and evolved, and how does that fit in with what you're talking about, how it's all, it's all people? Um, it's interesting because British fandom, French fandom, but European fandom, American fandom have all evolved in slightly different ways up till the turn of the millennium. And the thing that made the difference was readily available cheap broadband. 
that has changed the fandom universe. That is the big change. I mean, obviously, um, improvements in video technology help a lot. When we used to trade tapes back in the day when you, you stuck cassettes of essentially sellotape with iron filing in your video and you hope that you get a good transfer on it, um, there were an awful lot of complications to trading tapes. There were a lot of complications to getting tapes to each other. Back then, it could take months. You know, people people would excitedly tell you that their friend in Japan was taping something off TV for them, and every week the video cassette would go in the post, and, or every month when it was full up, and everybody that person knew would be waiting for it to arrive. Fandom was so local. Fandom was like a series of little medieval villages dotted in a great dark forest. And now, of course, fandom's global and instantaneous, and a multi-headed monster that's doing its best to devour the, the, the entirety of the body of the thing it loves. But broadband has been the change, fandom hasn't been the change. Because people can do things, generally they will do things. Uh, you were a good example of this. You mentioned obviously you'd start with Star Trek and, and moved over to anime. There seems to be a pretty good correlation between the fan bases and interest between science fiction and anime. Uh, why, why do you think that is? Well, I think Star Trek, particularly more than science fiction and anime, because Trek was an incredibly woman-friendly fandom. Trek was it was a female-dominated fandom from its inception. I mean, you know, we let you guys play in our sandbox, <laughs> and, and guys were very welcome as Trek fans, and some guys were very influential Trek fans. But one of the interesting phenomena about Trek fandom is, right from the word go, it was a fandom where women led. Whereas science fiction fandom, right from the word go, way back in the 30s when it really got off the ground, was a male-led fandom where girlfriends and wives were allowed to come along, providing they didn't try and pretend they knew it. Anything. And British fandom was still in that state in 1974 when I went to my first convention. There were six women at my first convention. Um, one of them was another woman who was there because she loved science fiction, and the other were females attached to other guys. Um, and that was, was very strange. And one of the, the great um, changes in my early fanish life was that Trek fandom and media fandom flooded SF fandom. And although there was initially a, a good deal of resistance to this cultural immigration, when everybody finally settled down and, and got together, everybody realized that the two fandoms had enriched each other. But I think anime fandom follows Trek fandom far more than it follows classic SF, at least in the West, in that it has always been a profoundly female-friendly fandom. Now, if you look at some other fandoms, say gaming fandom, sadly, gaming fandom is not especially female-friendly because the material on which gaming fandom bases itself is not especially female-friendly. And the attitude of some gaming fans is totally rejecting and disrespectful of women. Um, now, that's not to say that there's no disrespect for other genders and differences that comes up in anime fandom. There is. But generally speaking, the weight of female influence in anime fandom is strong enough to neutralize that. And most guys who are anime fans are not such total dorks that they let that happen. Sadly, and I don't want to diss gaming fans too much because I know some lovely gaming fans, most guys in gaming fandom, it seems, are such total dorks that they're willing to let that happen. And I think, you know, maybe we need a revolution, ladies. Maybe we need to take over gaming fandom. But to be honest, I haven't got time. Well, as long as we're on the topic with the gender and the fandoms, uh, I figure this is just kind of natural progression. Uh, what do you know or have you heard anything about this uh, My Little Pony thing in the past couple of years? Um, which, which particular one? Because I've heard quite a bit about My Little Pony things. I mean, there's the brony issue, of course, yes. which I think is lovely. I mean, for guys to embrace their inner plushie, I think is a wonderful <laughs> thing. Yeah. 
Um, and, but the thing that disturbs me a bit about, about My Little Pony at the moment is, is this, this range of dolls, and I understand there's a rationale for it within um, Ponydom, but there's a range of dolls in which the ponies are embodied as prepubescent leggy girls. Wow, have we ever seen that idea before? Um, and apparently there is a justification for it in, in, in game, as it were, that one of the ponies goes through into an alternate universe where she's a girl and all her friends happen to be there as girls. Why don't any of them transmigrate into boys? You know, that's, that's, that's the weird thing. Yeah, but, but um, now I, I think, you know, pony fandom's been quite positive, especially with the brony outpouring, because it's, it's encouraged people to acknowledge that they like soft, cute, pretty things, and they quite like to be a soft, cute, pretty thing now and then, and that's, that's fine, that's cool. Sorry. Um, oh, okay. Animate has such a range, such a range. Um, you know, my little brother um, loves the uh, slice of life type anime. I'm much more the uh, big zonking robot type yeah. anime guy, and it always surprises me that they can all come together at one convention mm. and that it blends so well. Yeah. Uh, does that ever does that surprise you, or does it just mm -hmm. seem logical to you? It's absolutely logical. I mean, you know. People who fly big zonking robots, we often forget from because of the mythology and the iconography of most robot shows, people who fly big zonking robots are usually estranged from their families or torn out of their family group or in some other way dumped into this strange universe and the robot becomes their friend and they have to cope with it. But there are a lot of robot anime where the big zonking robots are the product of a family group. I mean, look at all Gona Guy's anime. Most, fair enough, most of his families are pretty dysfunctional, but they're still families and they hang together and they care for each other and they look out for each other. And the fact that, you know, a couple of them happen to pilot giant robots or the rest of the backup crew is just, you know, that's just the day job. It's the family. Gatchaman, the, the main thing about Gatchaman is that they become a family. And I think one of the things that strikes me as really encouraging about anime is that all through it there runs this thread that it can be really hard to find your place in the world. It can be really hard to find that place where you feel comfortable and you feel accepted and you're willing to accept others. But that there is a place for everybody. You know, even if your thing is driving zonking great giant robots, or even if your thing is, you know, being a little creature with a horn and lots of sparkles, you could find your place in the big world by just finding the family that you fit best in and then using that as a base. Um, did you have like any favorite panels? Like you've been to so many conventions, like oh, what well, stuck out to you a lot? Crispin Freeman is always awesome to watch. <laughs> like, my favorite panels are the ones I get to do with Crispin. I really enjoy them. Um, I like, I love smart people. Being around smart people makes you smarter. And when you come to conventions, you get a lot of smart people. Some of them are smart in very different ways. And what I really like in a panel is finding a subject that I don't know much about, maybe that I've never heard of before, but that's presented in such an engaging way. I've just come from Charles Dunbar and Catriel Page's um, Shinigami panel, Study of Anime. That was amazing. That was so scholarly and so punchy and so well presented. That, that really, really thrills me. But I also love making panels. I love panels that are hands-on and that say, I'm going to teach you the techniques, I'm going to teach you the tools. So I did a haiku panel last time and that was great fun. I love to see craft panels. I love the cosplay panels. I love to see model making panels and construction panels. They're all the best. I mean, what this is, is this is the opportunity for all of us to go to a really great play school for the weekend. And whether we're playing with ideas or we're playing with art or we're playing with, with fabric, 
we're here with a load of other people who just want to play and don't think it's stupid and don't think it's crazy and don't say what's that going to do for your grades <laughs> although people learn study skills here better than they do in school and don't say that's not going to get you a job although people have got jobs here we just say you want to play that's fine come play with us and I love that I just adore that uh, very briefly uh, since cataloging all the anime must have been a tremendously daunting task and obviously you had to rely on resources from Japan what do you think was your best resource to get information about some of these especially the more obscure shows my best resource was my co-author Jonathan Clements Jonathan is brilliant Jonathan is funny and clever and you, re you guys really ought to get him over here sometime I mean how many people have you got who learned their Mandarin listening to their father play jazz sax in a Chinese restaurant in Essex <laughs> and then went on to be an associate professor in a Chinese university um, Jonathan's great, I, I love working with him, but obviously the internet is a huge resource for us, not for what's on it itself, but for the connectivity it provides. You can actually, through the internet, contact somebody within a couple of days who maybe has a senior position in Kyoto International Manga Museum or one of the universities there, whom you couldn't contact by letter in less than a couple of months and there would have been a good deal of awkwardness. But now, thanks to the fact that, that the internet makes communication so easily, even if somebody doesn't write, write and read English, and my Japanese is nowhere near good enough for a senior academic to, 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 to deal with, we can still work it out because things are quicker. So really, the greatest resource we have has been the internet, but not for the information on it, for the contact you can make through it. It's still, um, it's still a fairly wild kid, this internet thing, isn't it? It's, uh, and by the way, we should all remember, and please remember to take this down, we should all give thanks to my countryman, whom I'm very proud of, Sir Tim Berners-Lee, who had the idea for the internet, worked out how to make it work and then gave it away gave it to everybody for free because he thought this is just too important for me to hang around trying to make money for myself out of let's just give it away and I'm, I'm just so proud of him for that I'm so proud to come from the same nation and they honored him greatly at the Olympics yes he deserved it he really did deserve it he's a great guy and, and you know just imagine that idea the idea that changes the world and what do you do you just say okay everybody play with this have it it's free it's yours it's too much too much fun to keep mm -hmm. that's great that, that whole attitude is, is what i think we embody in anime cons play with this because we want to share it and we should have more of that okay thank you ladies and gentlemen <laughs> Thanks for listening to the PokePress Digest podcast. If you'd like to find more of our great content, visit our website at pokepress.blogspot.com. If you'd like to contact us, send an email to pokepress at gmail.com or follow at pokepress on Twitter. What did you think of the, the Raging Lawnmower tracks? <laughs> Yeah, so the short is the Pikachu's Peekaboo, in case you weren't sure exactly which short aligned with this movie. It has uh, one of the, the main parts of that is that there is this lawnmower well before Mo Rotom <laughs> that has a mind of its own. And it has these very, as you might expect, very chaotic uh, tracks associated with it. There's like the lawnmower or attack of the lawnmower and then the lawnmower returns <laughs> is sort of these two tracks on the score, you know, sort of the, befits this 
uh, piece of machinery run amok 